Great job, Rebecca. So partially my fault because I was listening to that song, if you're not familiar with it. It's uh, from Shane and Shane. And I was listening to that song on Friday night as I was uh, working on the sermon. And it was about, I don't know, 10.45. And, and then I thought, oh, I should have Rebecca play that song on, on Sunday. So I texted her. So she's been working on it, you know, pretty much all weekend to be able to do that for us. So, you know, I appreciate the, the work you put into it. And what a great song. Because honestly, that song just fits exactly with what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 21. And as we get ready to do that, I want to, I want to start out and I want to ask you a question. You know, I want to ask you a question. Sometimes we do that. What is the most beautiful place you've ever been to or seen? What is the most beautiful place you've ever been to or seen? And just think about that, um, you know, and picture that in your mind. You know, I've been, I, when, uh, when I started out in my career in IT, I traveled a lot. I traveled all over the world, really. And I've gotten to see some amazing things. I've, I've been to Alaska, and I remember going to Valdez, and Sharon and I actually went there in our pseudo honeymoon, if you will. And the thing about Valdez is not only is Valdez near Prince William Sound, which is beautiful in and of itself, but then there's this little road that you go outside of Valdez, and it is like walking into Hawaii. And there's like so many waterfalls there that you kind of quit counting how many you've seen. And it's like, I took a picture of 10 waterfalls. I don't need to take a picture of that one. I mean, it was the most amazing and beautiful thing I've ever seen. I never would have expected that in Alaska, of all places. I've been to Hawaii. I've seen the beautiful sunsets over the ocean that are there. We've seen the jungles around Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. You know, and, and I know you'll probably laugh at this, but growing up in Nebraska and driving out into the plains and seeing the sunset in the plains down over the horizon is completely different than it is in Colorado, watching the sun set and rise, well, set here over the mountains. It's, it's a completely different thing. So I've seen some beautiful things, and I just want you to know that no matter what it is that is that most beautiful picture in your mind, cannot possibly, cannot possibly uh, compare to the beauty that we'll see in heaven. This is the most beautiful place that you can even imagine. This week, we're going to start looking at uh, Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Revelation 21 today. And I just want you to know that this is really an incredible chapter in the Bible. You know, I'm really looking forward to us looking at this. As Sherry read in Psalm 84, the first two verses say, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the course, the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Let's read the first eight verses together of Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give, to the, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you, Lord, for, again, your word. I thank you, God, for the power of this picture that you've given John to record so that we can see what it looks like in our eternal home. Lord, I pray, God, that this morning that as I speak this message, Lord, that you would speak through me as I always ask, Lord, that this is your word and not mine, and that I would just be obedient to what it is that you've given me to say, Lord, and you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want us to learn about you, to find that hope that we have in the new heaven and the new earth, our eternal home in heaven with you. We praise you and thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, when we think about that in verse 1 where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And imagine being John, John the Apostle. You have just witnessed some of the most amazing and crazy things imaginable. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation at all, you know that this is towards the end, the last, the next to last chapter. The culmination of a lot of events and symbolism and things that people get caught in the weeds trying to figure out what all these things are. And sometimes I think we get so caught in the weeds trying to figure out what all these symbols mean, we forget what the message is that God is trying to tell us through John. So we're going to start in 21 and we're going to skip all of that other symbolism and stuff and we're going to talk about where is the new heaven and the new earth what is it what does it look like these are things that that we have we have no idea what they are we have no idea and yet John he's been given this task of writing them down and describing all these wonderful and frightening things that no one has ever witnessed before it's an impossible task you know, you're trying to make, you can imagine, he's trying to make these connections to the heavenly with the earthly. You know, it's like this, or it's like that. Things are beyond, beyond description. And yet here we go again. And he starts to write. I mean, can you imagine what an honor it would be to be John? What a privilege it is to be called up into heaven, into the throne room of God, and be given these visions, this revelation, to write down for all posterity, for us to read, to learn. 
we see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So John says that the new heaven and the new earth will take the place of the old heaven and earth. Does this mean that literally that we will have a brand new heaven and a brand new earth? Or is this more of a renovation of the old earth and heaven? Like I said, it's easy to get hung up on the symbolism and the things in Revelation, but I don't want us to do that. But it is important for us to take note in this case, what does John mean? This is not the first place in Scripture that talks about a new heaven and a new earth. We read in Isaiah 65, 17-19, and then again in Isaiah 66, 22, it says this, starting in 65, 17, Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever that in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In Isaiah 66, he records, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring, and your name remain. So it seems like that there is going to be some form of a new heaven and a new earth. We know that because the old one has passed away. In fact, the Greek word for new is the word kainos. Kainos, which means recent or fresh. In the dictionary, the Greek dictionary says that in this case, that what, what this means is that what is to come is made superior to what it succeeds. So the new heaven and the new earth is going to be so much greater than what we currently experience now. And this is what John is trying to describe for us in this chapter. God is about taking what is old and making it new. Much like our old lives lost in sin are being renewed in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. The old has passed away. All of the old past that we have, God takes it away. And He raises us up in newness in Christ. 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, talking about Jesus, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleansed and washed in the precious blood of our beloved Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. If we put our full trust in him, if we submit to his authority, if we lay our life down and seek his forgiveness from our sins, that put him on the cross, we will be made new. And as we see here in this final section of God's revelation, we see newness and rebirth, not only in ourselves, but in creation itself, in a new heaven and a new earth, cleansed in the blood of the Son of God. I don't know about you, but this gets me pretty excited and motivated to live for Christ, 
To know that there is this gift that He has given us at the end that is so beautiful and so wonderful, much more so than anything we could possibly imagine in our life. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18-24, and you'll notice that there is a lot of Scripture in my message this morning because in an instance like this, I really want the Bible to talk about itself. It's not Scott's opinion. This is the Word of God speaking about itself. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18-24, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that is seen is not, excuse me, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, even creation itself is waiting and groaning to be released and made new. Creation is a victim of the fall. This is nothing new to any of us. We should know this by now. But we are told to wait eagerly and patiently so that we can see the glory in our new home that John is describing for us. 2 Peter 11 through 13 says this. Peter describes it this way. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is telling us that, that we wait for the day of the Lord and for the judgment for those who refuse God. There will be those who refuse God and they will mock His coming. You've heard it. People go, well, you guys all talk about God coming back, Jesus coming back. Where is He? Where is He? Is He coming? I don't see Him. I can assure you of this. I assure you of this, that the Lord is coming. And when He comes knocking... There will be no mocking. This is a gift that only a holy, righteous, just, and loving God can give. We could never create such a place. This is God's final gift to us, those of us, Christian, who call Jesus our Lord and Savior. And then he says, and the sea will be no more. The sea, seen in ancient times as a place of evil and fear, because it's an unknown place. It's unexplored. In Revelation 20, 13, it's, it says it's the sea who gave up her dead, along with death and Hades for judgment. And those who were not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. 
Revelation 13.1 tells of the beast rising out of the sea. So the fact that John says that the sea is absent in his vision is significant. Evil is purged from the earth. People are no longer separated from each other by vast oceans. But in the absence of the sea should not cause us alarm because it is God's plan. And it is perfect because something better is about to be described. And then we look to verse 2. In verse 2, John says, now he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Another part of his vision, his revelation, is a new city, a new community coming down out of heaven from God. I want us to understand that this is a city, a city of God's people, the church, the most diverse church you've ever been in in your life, a city comprised of all nations and tongues where race and ethnicity do not matter. Jew and Greek, we're all one. One body of believers brought together in perfect unity for the sole sole purpose but to glorify our God by the saving grace found in the blood of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be there. I hear all the time from people who say that they don't like to come to church. They don't like to come to church because so-and-so is going there. I don't like to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. I don't like to go to church because I don't need the church to be a Christian. I don't like going to church because I don't like the music. The sermons are too long. All they talk about is money, etc., etc. The bottom line is people are saying, I don't like how God set things up. I don't like His bride. So I'm going to do it my own way. But the same folks who say that, they also want to go to heaven. And that puts them in a very difficult place because heaven is going to be a city, a community of God's people. The same people you don't want to sit with on Sunday morning. C.S. Lewis said that we should, if you strive for heaven, you gain earth. But if you strive for earth, you get neither. This is how God intended it for us to be since the beginning when he created people in Genesis. Genesis 2.18 said it was not good for Adam to be alone and so he created Eve. And this, believe it or not, is the first community. A community created in perfect love, in perfect unity. Each person created in the image of God and given a a specific purpose by the Lord. And the Lord walked with them. And as we know, this community was corrupted by sin and has not been the same since. This community changed from being about serving and worshiping our God to serving and worshiping ourselves, our idolatrous selves, our prideful selves, all about me. I've got to get mine. If I have the time somewhere in my schedule, I will worship him. If not, I will worship me. But now this community John is seeing is a very special community. Not like your everyday town like you'd find in La Junta. Next week we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Jerusalem and what it looks like, the new Jerusalem. But I want us to focus on what John tells us here in these first eight verses. In the next section he says that Jerusalem was prepared as a bride, adorned 
for her husband. John describes the city as the New Jerusalem as a bride adorned for her husband. In other words, the New Jerusalem, as we've said, is the church. How do I know this? Because the Lord has described the church as his bride. Again, Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Do you see how beautifully we will be dressed in robes of righteousness? You are clothed in the pure, white-washed garment of salvation given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because God accredits us with His righteousness. And then He imputes our sins. He takes our sins upon Himself. And He took them to the cross to shed His blood for our forgiveness. The great exchange. Our sins to Jesus and His righteousness to us. We deserve none of this. None of this. But it is only by the grace of God that we receive such a magnificent gift. This gift is to be invited in to be a part of the bride of Christ. Adorned in such unimaginable beauty that a human mind cannot paint a picture to fully describe it. Truly, it is something we need to experience firsthand to understand. The bride, the church, making herself ready for her husband, the Lamb of God, Jesus. Hallelujah! Our God, the Almighty, reigns. And that is what this is all about. The glory of our Almighty God. Of the praise and glory of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And the privilege of us being able to be there with Him. We don't deserve any of that. This is a gift that He has given us. Next week again, as we get further into chapter 21, the description of the bride gets more involved. And we'll look more at that. But I want us to look at, you know, what is going on right here in these verses. Because this summer we have looked at some difficult, some difficult passages. We've looked at the Psalms 51 through 60. And we know that, having looked at them, that David is writing about how he is being chased by Saul. Saul is intent on killing David for no reason, other than he's jealous of him and who he is. And last week, we talked about how David was in the middle of a battle, a battle that he was ultimately going to win. But at the time, he didn't think so, and so he's crying out to the Lord, like, what is going on, Lord? Why are my people being slaughtered? This passage here, this passage describes the spoils of victory from that battle for everyone who calls Jesus Christ their Savior and Lord. Verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the key to the whole passage this morning. We will be dwelling with God and He will dwell with us. 
A return to the way God originally designed it to be before the curse and the fall in Genesis 3. And this is where I want to spend our time. I want us to live here for a little bit. I know we lived a lot in the first part, but I really want us to live here. So get ready. We're going to live here for a while. Genesis 3.8 tells us that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for Adam and Eve. There is no indication that this is an unusual thing that God would be walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. That this was out of character for him. No, it, it's not out of character. He was walking with them. God created us to dwell and to commune with us. He wants to be with us. It is his heart to walk in the cool of the day with you. Have you ever thought of God walking in the cool of the day with you? And I realize August in La Junta, it is hard to find the cool of the day. But maybe even in the heat of the afternoon, can you imagine God walking with you? This section here is a fulfillment of God's promise way back in Leviticus 26. When we read verses 11 through 13 in Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, 11 through 13, it says this, starting in verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Wow, it sounds almost exactly like what John was talking about. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. This is the Lord making a promise to Israel that as long as they would follow His commandments and statutes, He would dwell with them. The Lord's desire has always been to dwell with His people. And as we know, Israel failed in their end of the promise. But God sent Jesus. He came to save us. And He also dwelled among us. John 1.14 says that, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we looked at in Sunday school this morning too, John, 1 John 1, 1-4, John talks about his experience with Jesus and his walk with Him, that he saw Him, he heard Him, he touched Him. Jesus lived on earth with his people. The Lord wants to be among his people. Do you see that? Do you see that the Lord wants to dwell with you? With you. Here's one more thing for us to understand about this. That Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15-16 to come and dwell with us and actually be in us. John 14, uh, John 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God not only wants to dwell with you, Christian, He wants to dwell in you. In fact, He is communing with you every single day. 
We should be so encouraged by this. That's why our relationship with God is personal. It could not be more personal. And yet, it becomes even more personal. And in fact, returns back to the way it was designed to be when he walks with us and talks with us in the garden in heaven. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone, in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. But those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. We are made to be a community and God dwelling among us. Exodus 33, Moses intercedes for Israel after the golden calf incident, and he pleads with God's presence to be with them as they continue on their journey to the promised land. He says this, Exodus 33, 15-17, he says, And he said to him, Moses speaking to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every, every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses knew that it was God's very presence it's what set them apart. It's what made them distinct from all other peoples on the earth was God was with them. The God. The Almighty God of heaven and earth. And just as this exchange ended, Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. And the Lord said in verse 20, He said, But, He said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. But here's the difference that we have between then and now. The difference is that in the new heaven and the new earth, our eternal home, no longer will the Lord hide his face from us. Think of that. Think of that. We will be able to look upon the full glory of God and live. And live. That is so unbelievable. No longer will our sin prevent us from going into His full presence and look upon Him. 1 John 2.28 says this, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame in His coming. No more shame. No more shame from our sin. We can look upon our Savior and live. What beautiful words. Who doesn't want to go to heaven right now? This new heaven and the new earth. What an awesome place. The Lord not only wants, to dwell, wants us to dwell with Him, but we will. And we can have full confidence in this. That we will see Him. We will see Jesus as He really is. And once we reach our home in His perfect love for us, we see five things that we have to endure now in this world 
that will be wiped away in heaven. Verse 4 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more remorse, no more regret. I wrote a list, it's not an exhaustive list, of the things that I could come up with as I was writing this, of the things that we will not have to deal with in heaven. There will be no more cancer. No more joint replacements. No more infection. No more COVID. No more any other pandemic for that matter. No more disease. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more mourning for those who suffer and die. No more crying, no more pain, either physical or emotional. No more loneliness, no more depression, no more miscarriages, no more addiction, no more wheelchairs, no more prosthetics, no more crutches, no more hair loss. I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to that one. Timothy, yeah, right on. Brandy, I got it. I feel you, I feel you guys. No more loneliness, no more depression, no more miscarriages. I already said that. That's all right. It's still important. No more diabetes. No more blindness. No more eyeglasses, readers, or otherwise. No more cursing others. No more doubt. No more needles. No more medication schedules or cochlear implants. No more doctors. No more nurses. No more morticians. No more cemeteries. No more car accidents. No more high blood pressure. No more tonsillitis. No more AIDS. No more broken hearts. No more divorce. No more adultery. No more lust. No more battered women's shelters. No more sorrow. No more sex trafficking. No more abuse. No more masks. No more dentures. No more cavities or root canals. Sprained ankles. Heart attacks or strokes. No more reading package labels. No more calorie counting. No more diets. No more medical wristbands. No more worry and anxiety. No more evil. It's not an exhaustive list because I came up with no more police officers or firefighters. No more first responders. Our first responder is Jesus. But all of these things in this world brought about by sin will be no more. There'll be no more 24 on call, Mike. Praise God for that. Those of us who've been in positions in our lives where we've been on 24-hour call, I can tell you what, that is the greatest joy of all time. <clears throat> but all of these things that the world brought in because of sin will be no more. How can this be? How can this possibly be? Because in verse 5, we hear from the God Almighty, and He tells us why. Verse 5 says that he who was sitting on the throne, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Once again, God is telling us that things are going to be made new. This is the same word that we saw in verse 1. The new is going to be superior to the old. We have already covered it in detail. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I can picture 
I can picture John kind of getting distracted by what he's seeing and hearing and forgetting that he actually has a task ahead of him. And that task is to write this stuff down. And God says, you better get on it, dude. I told you to write this down because my words are trustworthy and true. And in this world that we live in right now where there is no truth, you know, where the world wants us to say, well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And there is no absolute truth. How dare you tell me what truth is? God says, my words are trustworthy and true. And write them down so that others can know that. That's the voice of God. Sometimes I wonder how in the world we get here. But brothers and sisters, we can know that God's truth, we can count on Him. Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie. Numbers 23-19 says God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. God is truth. If He tells us something, we can count on it. He is the truth. Verse 6, he says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. Scripture records the Lord declaring a task having been completed several times. Genesis 2, 1 through 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God's creation was completed. It was done. There needed not to be anything added to it. John 19.13 records Jesus' final words on the cross when he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Greek word for that is tetelestai, meaning paid in full. Our sins were fully paid. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. Hebrews 1.3 says, And He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And we have talked about this before in the past here at our church. We looked at the fact that the reason why this is significant is because the Levitical priests never sat down because there was always another sacrifice to be made. But Jesus sat down, our high priest. Why? Because he was the final sacrifice. It was finished, it was done, it was complete. And now, it is completely finished. The Alpha and Omega determined that it is done. He said so. He declared it. Welcome home, my faithful servant, he says. So the next thing that we have to look at is, how do we know we're going to get there? How do we know that we're going to be able to spend eternity with our Father? And we find that answer in verse 7. In verse 7, John records, he says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
to know that you are a part of his bride, to know that you will be called his son, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Because only Christ gives us the invitation to this new heaven and the new earth. That he is the one who puts you in as his bride. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave you the right to become children of God. In order to be a child of God, we talk about, well, everybody's a child of God. That is not true. We might all have been created in his image, but to become his child, you must accept him as your Lord and Savior. You must believe on his name and the work that he has done for you on the cross. To be granted the right to be in this magnificent place, he, you must find your name in the Lamb's book of life. And the only way to do that is to accept his gift of grace and righteousness that he gave us through the cross. We don't have time to do this, I promise you. But if you look in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven different churches. Many of you at some point in your life, if you've been in church at all, you've had pastors who have preached on those. But there are seven different instances in there where Jesus exhorts those churches to overcome something, to stay the course, to follow him with the same hunger and thirst that they had at first. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman this. He said, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How do you assure your place in heaven? By placing your faith and trust in Christ. By thirsting for him and drinking from his river of life that he provided to you from the cross. And if you do, you will never thirst again and you will gain eternal life. And so I say choose wisely. And I ask who would not want to do that? Who would not want to be in this paradise with God walking with them day by day. But there are those who will. There are those who don't want to be a part of it. There are those that will not choose wisely. Verse 8 tells us this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. All of these sins that are listed provide for those that participate in them a short-term pleasure at best, but long-term eternal damnation at worst. The second death is a lake of fire for all those who don't find their name in the Lamb's book of life. If you were to turn back one chapter in Revelation, you'll see that. So you can read through that this week if you want to. This is for those who are prideful and willing to risk their eternal destination on their own works. We see from this list that those who participate in, the, in these sins, they will not find themselves in the glorious place with God. Those 
who shrink from Christ as cowards when confronted, who do you believe in? Like Judas. And we don't have time to go through each one of these sins by themselves, but we see that our world is following these traits even now. Even redefining marriage outside of God's original design between one man and one woman. The world says that as long as you find God somewhere, you will get to paradise. The world tells us to come and worship at the feet of Amazon and Facebook and football and even our own hobbies. But idolatry is not tolerated by God. He demands and deserves our worship alone. There is no other God. I ask you, do you find yourself outside of heaven looking in? Do you find yourself participating in these sins and caring less about finding hope in Christ? If you do, then I ask you to reconsider because this is no joke. We're talking about your eternal destination here. It's either going to be heaven or hell. We've already talked about heaven and what a beautiful place and why would you not want to go there? If you don't know how to accept Christ as your Savior, if you don't know what that means, if you need help in that area, come and see me after service. And we'll talk. But let's close with this. Romans 11, 33-36 says this, and I think it describes what we've just read about. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful, Lord, that you've given us this tremendous description of what our eternal home in heaven will look like. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful, Lord, to be called by you, to be drawn by you, to be your bride, to have our sins forgiven by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have hope in him, Lord, that all of the nastiness and mess that we find ourselves in in this world, Lord, will be gone when we are with you in our eternal home. Lord, my heart breaks for those who, who scoff at this and cast it aside as just a fairy tale, who don't take your words that are trustworthy and true seriously. I pray, God, for their souls. I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself and they would repent and come before you and find forgiveness of sin and find their name written in the Lamb's book of life. I pray, God, if there's someone here this morning who is holding out, who has not made that decision, that they would come forward today, Lord, and come and see me and talk to me about it. 
and repent and give their life to you. We thank you, God, again. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us when we deserve nothing. You have given us everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.